So we're going to start today in Mark, in a very famous passage. And I know you're like, you just told me Esther chapter 2, so I turn there. Yes, it's a plot. Stay at Esther chapter 2. I'm just going to read you Mark, and I promise we will get to Esther chapter 2 in a minute. But this is a very famous passage. Chances are, if you've ever walked into a church more than two or three times, you've heard about this passage. It comes right after Jesus' final meal with his disciples when he goes into a garden. And he goes in the garden to pray because the weight of what he's about to go through is upon him. It's not something that's happening in the future anymore. It is here. He says the hour is come, meaning like the time is now. So he takes his 12 most devoted followers. He takes them in the garden. He takes three more a little bit farther and he tells them, hey, wait here. Pray for a little bit. I'm going to go a little bit farther. And he falls on the ground and he prays this prayer to God. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Then going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if the possible hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He knows he's about to die. And he cries out to his father saying, hey, is there another way that we could do this? He says, I've looked into the future and it hurts. You're God. All things are possible for you. I know you. I know your character. We can do this another way if you will it to be done, but not my will, yours be done. He goes back to check on his disciples. They're asleep. He wakes them up. He says, hey, man, come on. I told you to pray. Let's pray. He goes back. He prays the same prayer again. Hey, can we do this a different way? He goes back. His disciples are asleep again. He says, eh. He goes back to, to pray, and he prays one last time. Can there be another way? And then he senses in his spirit that this is what God has for him, and he walks into the time of his arrest. And many men come to arrest him, but his disciples aren't ready to give up yet, and one of them pulls out a sword and attacks the high priest's servant and is like, no, you're not taking Jesus. And Jesus stops his disciple and says, hey, 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 don't you realize that if I wanted to, I could stop this in a second. I could literally call 72,000 angels. That's not hyperbole. Matthew recorded it. He says, I could call 12 legions worth of angels and we could kill this in a second. Put away your sword. I am choosing this. I am choosing what comes next. I am choosing to allow myself to be arrested. I am choosing to go to a false trial where people will make up lies about me. And even when the guy in charge of the trial, Pilate, says, I find no guilt in him, I will choose to be subject to the whims of the mob and let them take me. And I will let them fasten a crown of thorns that they put on my head simply to mock me. And they'll hit me. And they'll say, here's the king of the Jews. And then they'll whip me. And I will choose it all. And then they will spit at me. And I will choose that. And then after they've had their fun and after they've stripped me naked and played games to see who owns my clothes, I'll let them take me to a stick of wood and I will let them drive nails through my hands and feet and I will choose all of it. I could stop it at any moment, but I will choose all of it because I see what's on the other side of it. In choosing the humiliation and in choosing the pain and in choosing death, he also chooses you and me. Because our life is on the other side of that cross. And I highlight 
the fact that he chose it because without choice, there can be no love. I cannot compel you to love me. If I have enough power, if I have enough influence, I can compel you to obey me. Kings can compel soldiers to walk to their death. They cannot compel them to love them because that's not the way love works. It's fun to talk of love in terms of chocolates and butterflies in your stomach, but it's more appropriate to talk about loves in terms of choice. And knowing what we know about Jesus and knowing what he chose for us, his cross is his love letter to us. It's his saying, you have no idea the lengths that I will go to know you just for the chance that you could know me. You have no idea the suffering that I will choose so that you can look at a God on the cross and say, that guy loves me. And with this in our mind, with the knowledge that all of those choices point to the indisputable fact that the creator of the universe desires us and loves us and chose us, with that in our mind, we dig into Esther chapter 2. But before we get there, I want to set the stage, because I don't know if you've read this. If you have not, you need to just cancel whatever you're doing this afternoon and read it, because this stuff is out of hand. If you are a screenwriter in this room, if you are some kind of author, I cannot believe that the streaming services have not made this into a miniseries yet. This would sell in a second. So consider that my gift to you if you're a writer. Adapt this book, become a millionaire, take me to lunch. That's your three-step plan. Because this stuff is out of hand. The book starts with a king who throws a party for 180 days. I throw a party for three hours, I'm out of money. (laughs) Scripture says he threw a party for 180 days so he could show off his wealth to his entire kingdom because when you've conquered the vast majority of the known world, I guess you get to do things like that. But he throws this 180-day party. He's going nuts. He's showing off everything. And then the party kind of ends. And I guess 180 days was not enough because then he decides to throw a seven-day feast. We're going to call that the original after party. (laughs) King Xerxes invented the after party because evidently after 180 days, they had not had enough. We need seven more days worth of feasting. And this was opulent. It was lavish. It was extravagant. The king gives orders. He says, hey, let all of my guests do whatever they want and drink whatever they want. You can imagine how out of hand this is. So the king gets hammered. Scripture's words, not mine. And on the seventh day, he wants to show off his prized possession. Because I guess after 187 days, he's run out of things to show off. So he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, who is recorded was very beautiful. She was also throwing a feast at the same time. He calls, he says, hey, go get the queen for me that I might show her off. And the queen says, yeah, I'm not coming. I got to imagine this king is not used to hearing things like that. So this doesn't go very well, but he's upset by it. But you know who's most upset by it? His advisors and his lawyers. Because they're all doing math going, "Uh uh-oh, if the queen doesn't have to obey the king, then my wife doesn't have to obey me either. We're going to have to make an example out of this queen. 
so that our wives don't get the idea that they can think for themselves and tell us no. So they all come together. They're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to banish the queen. Yep, good plan. Then all the women in the kingdom will know if the queen is going to be punished, you will too. Order will in store, we're good. So they banish the queen. But a little bit of time goes by. King wants a new queen. Advisors all say, hey, it's good for a king to have a queen. So here's what we'll do. And I'm only going to give you the PG version of this. You want the, the real stuff? Read the book. Or watch the miniseries that I just promoted. <laughs> get in there. We're going to get all throughout the kingdom. We're going to gather all the young virgins. We're going to take them to the palace, and they're going to live there. But you don't just get to go meet the king. The king is far too important for that. Before any of these young virgins get to try out to be queen, they have to undergo a year of treatments because you need perfume so that your scent is pleasing to the king. You need oil and lotion so that your skin is pleasing to the king. You need training. You need etiquette. You, need, you don't just get to come off the street and go meet the king. You have to be fashioned into something more than you are because this is the king. So these young ladies go through a year of treatment. I told you this stuff was bananas. Goes through a year of treatment. And then you get to go see the king. That means you enter in on the evening and you leave in the morning. And that's all I'm going to tell you about that. That's your tryout to be queen. So Esther's night comes. She goes in in the morning, she, or she goes in in the evening, comes out in the morning, and if the king doesn't like you or doesn't remember you, you go to live with his concubines in a kind of another area of the kingdom, and if he calls you by name, you get to see him again, but this was not the case with Esther. The king loved Esther, and he extended the crown to her, and Esther became the new queen. But all through this year where this was happening, her uncle Mordecai would walk through the courtyard every day trying to get news about Esther because he loved her as a daughter. Her parents had died and he had raised her. So you have to imagine, given the power of the king, what had just happened to the queen, and now his beloved niece is up in this kingdom that he's got no control of. You have to imagine the tension there. He loves her. He wants news. He wants to protect her. So every day he walks through the courtyard hearing news about Esther, and eventually Esther is made queen. And that's where we pick up our story in Esther chapter 2. The author writes, When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's date, gate, Begantha and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. And all of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So in doing his job and in checking on Esther... Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, who in turn tells the king, 
giving proper credit to Mordecai, and the king's life is saved, which we can kind of infer now Mordecai is in line for a big reward. I mean, the king is a really big deal. You save the king's life, he should break you off a little something. If I find your wallet and there's a thousand bucks in it, I'm going to give you your wallet back with a thousand bucks in it, and you're going to give me 20. (laughs) Because that's the way that works. Gratitude, giving, generosity. This is not the way it pans out. In fact, someone else is rewarded and honored. We start recorded in chapter three. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Man, Haman's riding a hot streak. So, like, there's nobles, and then there's Haman. He is winning. The king has given him gifts. The king has given him authority. The king has given him positions. The king has given him titles. The king says, hey, when Haman walks in and out, you guys bow down to him just like you would to me. But Mordecai says, nah, not going to do that. Haman is riding a wave of momentum. Everything is pushing his direction but Mordecai. And when you are the guy that goes against the tide, when you are the guy that pushes back against momentum, you get asked questions. And so questions follow Mordecai. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Why aren't you listening? Are you crazy? The king is not to be disobeyed, and he's given this guy authority. Do you have a death wish? Just bow down like the rest of us. Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Snitches. Snitches. It was not hurting them one bit for Mordecai to not kneel down. But they did the thing that happens in every third grade classroom. Why doesn't Jimmy have to? No. Snitch, just trying to stir the pot. Just seeing what drama they could get into. Further evidence that you never really graduate. You just get older. (laughs) So they go and they're stirring this up. And it has its desired effect. It creates the drama that they desire. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman is mad. And he's not just coming for Mordecai. He hates Mordecai, but he also hates the Jews. So he says, look, I can take out my enemy and his entire race. So he hatches a plan and he goes to the king and he says, king, there's a people that keep themselves separate from from your customs and it is not advantageous to you to let them live in your kingdom because they keep it separate. Let me destroy them for you. I'll even give you 10,000 talents of silver. So he basically says, hey, I'll give you millions of dollars if you let me take out these people for you. And the king 
another massive flex and a series of massive flexes by this king says, I don't need your money. Here's my ring. Take my signet, write up whatever you want. I don't have to see it because when you stamp it with my signet, it becomes edict. You speak for me, Haman, you go. So Haman does it. He writes it up. He says the day that they're going to be killed. He sets basically a due date for genocide. And Mordecai finds out about it as the news is disseminated throughout the kingdom. And through a longer conversation with Queen Esther, he convinces her to go to the king and plead for the lives of her people. And she's reticent at first because she says, hey, to show up, you don't just walk into the king's chamber. Don't you remember the year of training that I had? You don't just get to go see the king uninvited. I'm risking my life. And he says, perhaps your position was for such a time as this. And she says, okay, pray for me because I'm going in. She goes in. The king is pleased to see her, extends her the scepter and says, hey, you can have up to half the kingdom, my queen. I love you. You can have up to half of my kingdom. Make your request. But all she asks for is that the king and Haman come eat at a banquet with her. And so they do. And the king presses her at the banquet. He says, I know you don't just want us to eat with you. I know you've got something else on your mind. And she says, hey, you and Haman, just come back and eat with me again. And you can imagine, Haman thinks he has arrived. He's like, I eat with the king and the queen, just me, nobody else. I am the man. And so you can imagine he leaves pretty full of himself. It's recorded in chapter 5, verse 9, that Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He's so happy. Then he sees Mordecai and he's miserable to the point where he has to restrain himself from attacking him. That's the rage that he feels. Food tastes like sawdust. His money is worthless. He cannot enjoy himself as long as that guy sits at the gate. So he goes home and calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow, but all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai at the king's gate. I'm rich. I eat with the queen. I have every blessing that my position could offer, and it's nothing because that guy lives on the same planet as me. I can take no joy out of any of this awesomeness because every day I have to look at his face. Pick out the one thing that's wrong with the planet and dwell on that. Anybody done that? He cannot enjoy everything that he's been given because of the one thing, the burr, the, the thorn. But his wife knows how to solve it. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, about 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Why wouldn't he? The king's already said he could kill an entire race. What's one more person who just happens to fall in that race? 
all I'm doing is moving up the due date for one more guy. He says, oh, I'll go murder Mordecai, and then I'll be able to enjoy my dinner. And he should be able to pull it off. The power dynamic here is skewed crazily. Haman's got the king's ring. Haman's got all the money. Haman's got all the power. Haman's got all the influence. Mordecai is just an attendant at the king's gate who's scheduled for death pretty soon anyway. Mordecai does not even know that Haman is plotting to kill him. He does not even have the chance to defend himself should he even magically somehow find the ability. He does not even know that this is coming. Haman holds all the cards, has all the influence, and there is no reason that his plan should not be successful. But God. Because the one that chose the cross is also the one that fights for Mordecai. That night, the very night that Haman plots Mordecai's murder. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, to record the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. History teachers don't take offense. I'm sure he was reading it because he wanted to remember his reign, not because reading history books is the cure for insomnia. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. As we said before, you saved the king's life, that's a big deal. You should get a reward. And the king obviously agrees. The king says to the servant, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had already set up for him. So Haman walks in that morning with murder on his mind. And the king and his attendants answer, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I'm the most important person in the world. Who else would the king want to give awesome stuff to, being that I am so awesome? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe so the king has, that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So blinded by his arrogance, Haman asks for exactly what he wants, everybody to see how awesome he is. Because it is, is it even worth being awesome if everybody else doesn't know it? Is it worth having a delicious meal if you don't get to post it? <laughs> is it worth your kid playing a sport if you don't get to post the one good play they had all day? 
is none of it worth anything if everybody doesn't know it? And that's what he asked for. King, let everybody see how awesome I am. And the king loves the idea. He says, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. Just picture my guy right now. <laughs> Just picture Haman. But the king says it. And the king is not to be trifled with, nor argued with. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai, led him on horseback throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. What a turn of events. Supposed to be dead on a 75-foot pole. Now wearing the king's robe on the king's horse with the guy who tried to kill him yelling out, this is the king's man. But God. But God. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. My guy's still got a job to do. But Haman rushed home, his head covered in grief, and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. He is understandably shaken and confused. How could this guy do this? He's got nothing. He is nothing. I am everything. Under, I understand Haman's confusion at this. How could me, the second most powerful, wealthy, influential person in the entire conquered known world, not win against this gatekeeper. But what he doesn't know, his wife and his friends have already figured out. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. She gets it. The God who spoke creation into existence fights for Mordecai. Before there was a plan to kill an entire race of people, before there was a murder plot to kill him, his niece was made queen and he saved the king's life and went unhonored for it. Two things that we probably wouldn't consider all that great. To have someone you love taken from you and put where you can't get to them. To do something amazing and receive no reward. We would look at that and say those were two negatives. But God, who was fighting for Mordecai before Mordecai ever knew there was a battle. He's got every right to wonder where his God is. My niece has been taken. There's a madman with all the power and money in the world out to kill me. And I don't even know it. But the God who chose him, the God who chose the nails, the God who chose death, the God who chose to be spit on and mocked and unjustly tried is not absent in our suffering.
We just have to be humble enough to admit that we might not see everything that's going on. That the God who holds all the power in the universe might, might just have enough strength to handle whatever I'm battling today. That the God whose amount of wisdom means that no one could ever advise him. Who can teach God? Might know a little bit more than I do. That the God who chose death, that the God who chose mockery and stabbing and ultimately bled on a cross some 2,000 years ago when he chose me, still chooses me today. He did not offer up himself to abandon you in the battle that you are fighting. And you will have battles. You were not promised a pain-free life. You were promised a God who would love you no matter the circumstance. And you were promised a God that would secure your future with him forever. But just like his path included adversaries and weariness and torture and people out to get him, our paths will do the same because we have been called to follow him. But when we're in pain, all we can think about is how do I stop this pain? When we're in tragedy, all we can think about is how do I escape this tragedy? How do I stop these bad things that are happening to me? But to focus on the tragedy and the pain is the mistake. We led with the cross this morning because that should always be our focal point. That was always the letter to remind us that the God that chose you some 2,000 years ago, the God that chose you when he wove the fabric of this creation together will continue to choose you today, tomorrow, the day after, regardless of your circumstance. Take your eyes off what you see around you and put it on what you cannot see. The God who saw you on the other side of the cross and said, yes, give me all of that. And then some. No matter who's against us. No matter how wealthy, influential. No matter how dire the circumstances are. But God. It makes no sense to ask what things cost in his kingdom. It makes no sense to ask what can't God do. Because the God that does not know how to fail fights for you and me. And we forget it. And we fall into despair. So he gave us a way to remember it. In his final meal, he gave us what we call communion. And we're going to take that as a family right now. If you don't have your communion stuff, raise your hand. We have fine men and women that will come around and get it to you. Because this is how we remember the lengths that he went to to convince us that he will always fight for us. The cross is a symbol of his love and the tomb is a symbol of his power. And when we feel defeated and when we feel alone, and when we see no way out, when we look at the cross, we're reminded of the great love and that our future is already secure.
when he took this meal, this is the Passover meal. It's a way they commemorated the sacrificial system. He said, there's no need for this anymore. He said, I am the lamb that this meal symbolizes, so we're gonna do it a different way. He said, take this bread. And he said, break it in two. And he said, this bread symbolizes my body, which is broken for you. And so as we do that this morning, take your bread and remember that this was his body broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the wine and he told them, this is my blood. I will die to show you that I love you. I will die to show you that I am never so far away from you that you are defeated. I will die so that you know I will always choose you. And this is my blood so that you never remember in your pain the lengths that I have gone to to secure your victory. So let's remember him as we take the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We, thankful, we are thankful that though we forget your great sacrifice, that though we take our eyes off the cross and forget your great love, you are patient with us. That as many times as we walk away, you will take us back and you did not even spare your son in an effort to communicate with us what we so often forget, that you are good and you are God and your very character is love. Let us always be a people that comes back to the love you show us on the cross and the power you show us in the tomb. That even when we don't see victory, we know that victory is a person and victory is not far from us because victory in its very nature has chosen us. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. If anyone has any questions about the nature of Jesus Christ or who he is, I would encourage you to come forward today. Go to the prayer room to my left or the people on my right. Talk to them. Ask them questions about who Jesus is. Ask them about what he did on the cross. If you know him, just pray with them because we were not built to do this alone.